0: Hi and welcome to Just The GP. Today you're here with your three usual co-hosts Beck, Ash and Charlotte and we have a special treat for you today. Ash is going to discuss how she found her niche in general practice and is following her passion in a slightly different direction. But as always we're going to start with our highlight of the week. So Charlotte take us away what was your highlight for this week? Oh, my highlight
1: this week has actually been the ability to go and celebrate long-term friends' birthdays on the weekend. And so it's been lovely. I had two birthday parties that I went to on both, one on each day. And it's just been so lovely to catch up with these long-term friends. And, you know, really it's been two years since any of those sorts of celebratory events have I been attending at. But I was interested by how anxious I got because, of course, Mostly they're non-medical and no one was wearing masks and we were in, you know, restaurant spaces. So I did feel quite anxious about the proximity to my friends, even though I was delighted to be there and I was trying not to display my level of anxiety. (laughs) But yes, I think that was my highlight, being able to move on and go into a, a normal, more normal world, I suppose.
2: And you, Ash, what was your highlight? I would say this week I have experienced a bit of a slowing of the pace in my life, which is Mm. really nice. I've sort of been hurriedly trying to get everything sorted and in order to open up my new space. And I sort of had this realisation earlier in the week and I was like, why am I rushing so much? (laughs) Like it's not going to be open for another couple of weeks. So I don't have to, I've sort of done the hard legwork. I really need to sit back and take it at its natural pace rather than trying to hurry it all up. And that's been a really nice sort of realisation to come to.
0: I like the idea of slowing down a little bit. I'm not very good at it myself. (laughs) I think mine's actually quite similar to Charlotte's. We had a big team family dinner this week with all of our staff at the practice, and it was absolutely wonderful. We'd had a bit of a pandemic retirement towards middle to late last year and have lost some of our GPs who decided that they would retire and move on. And we've got a new group of younger GPs who all have, um, well, many of them have kids under the age of eight. So we had all of our team, all of their families, all of the kids running around like crazy. And it was really lovely to be out and seeing the kids playing together and sitting down and sharing a meal with colleagues who you often don't get to have a proper conversation with outside of work because you see them in passing or talk about patients. And it was really lovely to take the work away from it and just enjoy their company as people. It was um, lovely. But, yes, the masklessness of it was daunting, but okay-ish.
2: We're entering <laughs> yeah. into a new world now and, I like remember the time prior to the pandemic where that would sort of just be so normal and I can imagine for your team they haven't had that opportunity probably since you've bought in to have a team building activity like that yeah
0: so it was lovely and I think it's going to be our new tradition going to start doing it at least every quarter getting everyone together and sharing a meal with the extended family, because I think it's nice to know a bit more about everyone you work with as well and have that bit of a family feel, which is exactly the type of practice that we are. It's for everyone. But, yeah, but you, Ash, you've got exciting new journeys and I guess where I'd like to start is right back at the beginning about why you decided to essentially make a change. Mm.
2: So I would say this is like a couple of years worth of journey. (laughs) We don't have all day, but I'll give it like a brief summary. I guess there was something in me really early on in my medical career that changed when my sort of personal circumstances became more difficult. So you guys both know when we started the podcast back around the time when um, I was going through IVF with my partner and I really noticed how much of what was going on for me really impacted on my capacity to be present in certain consultations or or be physically, mentally, psychologically present and also recognized the need to respond to that and change how I was practising. And so I think I went through this zone of like being really interested in doctor's health, as you guys would know, and then... As I sort of became more comfortable and familiar and deepened my own sort of personal journey, I really found practicing within our system-based structure really difficult. You know, the seeing four people an hour, trying to have to do lots of things all at once, feeling like I was constantly hurried. Like when I was at work, my nervous system was sort of in an hyper-arousal state. And I started to notice that it was the reason why I had to reduce the days that I was working is because my nervous system was in a hyperarousal state when I needed to sort of meet that expectation. So I tried to start slowing down some of my consultations. And then that meant that the people who were coming to see me, we could explore the issues more. And I became much more interested in people and the humans and the journeys. And, you know, I guess I started to unlearn a lot of the things that we were taught in medical school around particularly around the way that we we work and understand illness and disease in the context of somebody's life, the history of trauma, and also some of the recommendations that we give that can sometimes be harmful around lifestyle changes. And I got really interested in working with people who have a complicated relationship with food movement or their bodies and sexuality. So I, you know, I've always been more interested in mental health and, from an early age in my career that was always a part of it and then I found over time like I wanted to spend more and more time working on the psychological contributors to someone's ill health and then the pandemic hit and I just realized that like being in a mask and not being able to touch people not seeing people that have kids or that acute care where you sort of you do develop relationship in that time I found that really difficult I really felt like being pp up really and the disconnection that occurs for our safety and their safety um, and the switch to sort of doing phone care and telehealth I really noticed a big difference and I I got to the point was like I don't want to practice medicine in this way it feels really foreign to do it this way that you know the people coming to see us we are having to stay separate from it is really odd like I'd, I'd never noticed that in in medicine before and then I made that shift at sort of early last year into doing more psychological work that wasn't interspersed throughout my day sort of dedicating two days to it and I realized I'd walk into that space and I'd really love it and then I'd go to walk upstairs and I'd just be like oh I don't I'm not interested anymore you know I'm really not I didn't have the passion there walking upstairs and I really, really felt that I wasn't depleted after the work that I was doing in my, what was called my downstairs space. And so I was like, I need to follow that passion. And it really, I would say it really came from a place of real like understanding of myself and my own difficulties, like that, allowed me to realize what was working for me and what wasn't working for me and I don't think I would say that I burnt out in general practice at all I feel like I fell out of love with regular general practice and what I used to enjoy about it I no longer was no longer there and then it was the moment that I sort of made that decision to go into a niche area like I had to go through this whole grief process of what does it mean to be a GP because I guess for so long I'd really like been a staunch advocate for providing the whole scope of care and I kind of was getting to this point in my career where I realised that's not how I wanted to practise anymore. So it was a really interesting and difficult process. I definitely at the start of 2021 was not ready to give up, you know, general, general practise and now I'm so ready and so excited to sort of step into my passion area and and really use my skills and what I've learned to the highest level yeah so it's, it was an odd sort of journey and you know I had to sort of let go of everybody else's or what I thought everybody else's expectations of me were you know like oh you have to stay in general practice you have to do general general practice as well and I was like why why do I have to do that why can't I just go all in so that's what I'm doing I'm going all in and just seeing what happens <laughs> And I guess that's the beauty of training in generalism or general practice is that, you know, you can do that and if 10 years, five years, one year down the track that it doesn't work for you, then, you know, you can do something else. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So what do you think will be the biggest sort of, well, let's do it as an enabler, enabler for you in terms of being able to look after your patience in that context well that's different from what you're currently doing at the moment time keep going <laughs> tell us about what that what that so what what will time do for you and how is that different
2: i don't necessarily think that it's what time will do for me solely certainly What I experienced when I started offering extended consultations, so sort of hour-long consultations and -and hour-and-a-half-long consultations, 40-minute consultations for new patients, was that it was so much richer for me to not feel like I had to squeeze stuff into a period of time. I felt I had the chance to listen more deeply and understand. So... It also allows, you know, m- me as a human in that space to settle and not feel rushed and also the other person in the space to not feel rushed. So sometimes the content, you don't get any more content out in a longer period of time, but you there's the sense of being able to have the time and space to listen and understand and have a deeper level of conversation than, And discussion than what I was able to before and I think one of the arguments that often comes up against that is oh but in general practice we know people over a long period of time so it doesn't you know you get that over years and I certainly definitely do understand that but I would say even the people that started to come and see me for my longer appointments that I had known for five years it changed so yeah there's something about the art and humanity of medicine that that is that time allows. You know, when I think about how medicine as a as a healing art, where you know, as an apprenticeship based model, you know, it really was sort of home visits and tending to people and being with them when they were at their sickest and having time. And I think that's what I really liked about palliative care as well. That sort of element of you know, really being with people and having the chance to be able to do that.
1: So take me through this. You are designing a a mental health care for these complex patients or are you actually offering a service that does look after the holistic care of the patient so that you're using that sort of whole generalism skill? I'm sort of interested in the model when we're sort of talking about obviously The main issue is the mental health care needs, but is the package you're offering actually for everything?
2: I would say yes, but we've got to consider the caveats in that. So, you know, what is holistic medicine? Does holistic medicine take into account acute care, procedural care, preventative care? Yes, I would say that. So am I going to be offering you know, on-call acute care, procedural care, preventative care? No. Will I be offering a service that looks after someone as a whole person? Yes. Will I want to be separate from the GPs in my community? No. Do I want to be integrated and a support for general practices in our community to provide something in our community that doesn't exist already that helps them to look after their patients better yes
1: okay so how does that work
2: what so do you I, mean i
1: mean i'm yeah no i suppose it's more just you know how are you what are the conversations and the collaborations i mean one of the big i'm you know like a huge advocate about team-based care and about using our skills to the the top of our scope and so i'm hearing you talk about that you want to use your mental health skills to the the top of your ability and not be limited by the constraints of of a general practice that is needing to have, you know, shorter flow through consultations. And so hence the need to design a practice that does have this longer consultation methodology. So if you're wanting to do that as part of a team, what's the process by which you're linking up the, what I call the warm handovers between yourself and say the GP that you'll be working in partnership with and is that an upfront sort of conversation with the patient that you have to say this is what I'm offering but I need you to have a GP for whom you're okay with me passing on the stuff that they need to be looking after and how are you going to do that so yes yeah walk me through.
2: Yeah and I think That's a really important question that you asked, Charlotte, because I think that that is sometimes what's missing in services that are set up to offer a niche outside of general practice. So I, you know, I've worked in both Headspace and a women's health centre locally and my biggest frustration was that there was not an attempted integration it was sort of a service existing outside of collaborative care with someone's regular GP so how our space will be set up is that yeah there is that sort of initial triage intake and you know you could call it a consent process around how you're going to communicate with someone's regular practitioners I actually love chatting with the GPs who refer to me on the phone and I talk to the people that I see around how I'm going to communicate with their GPs as well and I've certainly found that the there's a richness in my understanding of what it is that is general practice that I think means that that I have complete and utter respect for what's happening in that care and I'm willing to reach out to understand the person that I'm seeing more if I need to and it's sort of like a It's like, Charlotte, if you referred to me and I went and I saw someone that was under your care and I went, oh, this is a really, you know, I'm I'm struggling to understand this part of them or, you know, I tried this sort of strategy and it didn't really work. And, you know, I was wondering about something. I would feel 100% comfortable to ring you and go, hey, Charlotte, like I'm a bit stuck here. Can you help me to understand your patient a bit more? Or what, what do you think? You know, so I think and I haven't always found that is the same from people in different professions. You know, there's a like a protective mechanism of I don't want to show that, you know, I'm seeking, I'm, I'm feeling uncertain or I'm seeking clarification or that somebody else in the team might actually have something to offer. That could be completely contradictory or, or makes, you know, highlights and a lack of understanding, knowledge or skill. So I think there's something about There's something in there about really understanding the the value of someone's regular GP and collaborative approach there for sure.
0: I want to know a bit more about this space, about this journey that you're developing for the patients. What is your patient encounter going to be like? So can you walk me through... From when they arrive at your door or even before then, when they, how will they find out about you? What are they going to be met with when they come to
2: Ash's space? I would say this is feeling a little bit more like a business interview than a personal <laughs> interview. <laughs> so you've caught me a bit off guard when you're sort of talking in that domain because it takes me into a different mm-hmm. space in my head and in my body. You know, it sort of takes me out of... I guess, the reasons why I decided to go on this journey and what my personal values are and the the sense of what the connected human-based care is, that was my reasoning for Set It Up into more of like a practical how you're going to do it sort of vibe. So just bear with me because I'm not in that zone.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I guess that's what yeah. I'm interested about is the the patient values, the patient attitudes, what their experience with the project will be?
2: So, like, I'm not interested in transactional care. Hmm. So the space that I'm setting up is not visually clinical. You know, we've made a real effort that when you walk in the door, it doesn't feel like a medical space or a clinical space and the way that we've set up the initial contact and ongoing support for the person and with our team is that it's a human to a human so our software is has uh, so we're using a, a software that allows for the patients to be have that sort of full access to their their letters and documents where it's easy for them to make appointments, book appointments, change things, but also know that when they're connecting with us, they're able to contact us. So my team will have myself, we have a practice nurse who will do some of the management and then we have a dietitian. So it's a really small service. You know, it's not like a you're walking in and... You know, our space would be more akin to, say, like a therapeutic space than a medical space. So, you know, when you're sort of talking about what is the patient encounter, we won't even use the word patient. You know, it's not about them coming in and having an interaction with someone that is behind a desk, you know. So our, our reception desk is actually an oval, like there's no barrier between Um, There's no sort of walls that disconnect the person who might be the first contact, then the person coming in. And so in answer to your question, I would say the patient encounter is that they're walking into a space where they feel safe and where they feel like they can relax and that they're gonna meet other human beings that see them as human beings as well.
1: Okay, so you're threatening me a little bit here. Okay. And it's not meant as a criticism, but it's, and I completely get where you're coming from. But I would like to think that my patients feel like that when they come into my practice and that they matter. In fact, I know the feedback I get from my patients is they don't mind waiting for me because they know that they get what they need when they see me and that it's not an in out the door experience. So I suppose I, I will challenge you back that I understand what you're trying to set up, but be mindful that that we need to do that in the more medical space as well, which goes back to my sort of comment about that whole thing about us being able to provide what I call seamless care and that the care you're offering is in one space and meeting a certain need of a patient. But there is a whole lot of needs that they need to do, which from what you're describing does need to be done by somebody else because that's not suitable for the space that you've set up and I suppose to be able to really grow this sort of concept further forward I think it's about let's being careful that we don't judge certain spaces having said that I know that there's an awful lot of medical spaces which are totally disorienting depersonalizing and don't take that into account so I'm with you completely about the need to, to not do that. But I suppose I'm more putting the challenge out to us as GPs to recognise that that can be a huge barrier for people seeking care and we need to be able to sort of see what that looks like and how can we do it, particularly in a setting where general practice is struggling because financially, you know, it, it is hard to make ends meet when you look at bulk billing being required for a number of uh, socially vulnerable patients who are, you know, a lot of these very traumatised patients cannot afford to pay things. So how do we make sure we we sort of do both? Anyway, mm. just batten, it, batten the ball back.
2: <laughs> well, I would say, Charlotte, I certainly did not want what I said to come across as a criticism of yourself or any other amazing GP practice owners out there. You know, I certainly think that, there's many places where we can meet people as humans and for their environment to be safe and not threatening. So I guess I want to just frame my answer to Beck is that she asked me about what is the patient experience. and so that's where I was coming from for sure there. I think I had that same reservation as you, Charlotte. Like I had when I was going through that sort of grief process of me going, sort of leaving general general practice, I had all of those thoughts and I was like, no, it needs to happen in general practice. We need to do it in general practice. And I actually got to the point where I was like, it's not financially viable for me to do my work in a regular general practice because I can't bill the same dollars per hour that someone seeing three to four to six patients an hour can. And so the overheads that's required to to facilitate all of the other aspects is just not reasonable. So it's almost like I was, I wouldn't say forced out, I would say I've made a decision to step out because I couldn't see how the way that I wanted to practise and provide care was actually gonna fit within a medical structure. And I think that's really important because I think there's lots and lots of GPs out there who decide to go into their niche areas who have similar experiences. And that's where we end up having to set up different services to support those and you know I guess the question is well how can they be better integrated you know I had a bit of a chat with Molly Jamal about that and his answer was that you can still have integration with separate services as long as you as long as you have a focus on communication and collaboration
1: that was my point right back in the beginning which is and I 100% am with you on that because You know, as you say, you need to have a place that doesn't have the overheads for you to be able to then cost out a service that you can do that. But it needs to be linked to a service that is more expensive, but is going to provide it in a different fashion. And of course, we can do it together if we set it up so that we actually easily communicate between each other. And it's funny, isn't it, that we just don't have a culture of doing that, despite the fact that in medicine, you would think that that is. The starting point that we all, you know, right right in the very beginning when I was a medical student, that was my understanding of what would work. And I know my patients expect that that communication happens and are so surprised when it doesn't. And yet, you know, now however many years down the track, here am I um, still struggling to try and get some better communication happening between all the team players And, you know, you were talking about all the different services that don't communicate. And I was thinking, yeah, like family planning, which I'm very happy for my patients to go to family planning if if they feel more comfortable doing that than coming to us. But I don't get communicated to by family planning. And yet family planning knows that they have a GP, you know. So why don't we have a system where we actually sort of proactively say, hey, hey, family planning, when you see my patient, please just you know, obviously get permission, but there's no reason, well, there may be reasons, obviously, for certain issues that are communicated that we might want to keep confidential, but by and large, you know, it's so important that we're all on the same page when we're prescribing things and or making choices, that it happens safely. Um, at the moment, I'm furious with one of my local hospitals who who uh, had one of my patients in as an inpatient for three weeks, There were multiple changes done to her medications. She discharged earlier than she wanted to, but it was all very planned. There was a day of organising everything, but she ended up going home with none of her medications. The discharge summary didn't come through to me at all. I, I was able to find it on my health records, but you know what? It had no medication summary, no medication summary, and what was worse, it said there were no medication changes in hospital. And yet I had a conversation with the consultant and there were 10 medication changes. She went home on three new ones. I mean, she's very complicated. She's got something ridiculous like 25 medicines that she's on. And they didn't send me one bit of what they had done. Isn't that terrible? I mean, terrible. But, you know, like to me, that just shows a system under pressure. I don't care if it's a system under pressure. It's terrible. You know, there is no excuse. And it doesn't matter how pressured you are. Actually, quality and safety actually has to be number one. And if if those sorts of things are not happening, then you actually have to stop and go. We have to redesign how we do things. No one should be allowed out the door without actually, even if she'd had a printed list of her medications, that was from her, you know, her her chart to enable her to actually have that, you know, th- there needs to be, have been something, something.
2: You know, I think, Charlotte, you've hit a nail on the head about where we as doctors of the community see the failings of the system and we see the effect that it has on our patients. And I think... I'm still a firm believer that our health system needs major reform because it's not providing what we need to support practitioners to do the best work that they can, to support access to people who need it, to provide collaborative care, to allow ease of communication and collaboration. Like the software that I've chosen is one that means that I can easily write referral letters after a consultation back to someone's GP and it's set up really easily in relation to secure messaging as well so I can receive everything confidentially and I think the the lack of that being something that is just standard like when I looked up faxing systems I realized that e-faxes like go to some random location somewhere and then get emailed to someone's email and I'm like, that doesn't make sense. How can we say that fax is secure (laughs) when it goes to an email? Like it just doesn't, you know, I think there's so many things that just haven't really been thought about or have been thought about but are considered too hard. Like, oh, we know that we should always do a discharge summary to the GP and we need to make sure the medications are correct. Like I would say that's a basic Level of care, and it's been clearly demonstrated that lack of communication, clinical handovers leads to poor health outcomes for patients. Yet we still have a system that does it.
0: I'm interested in. We talked a bit about it before. You mentioned that it wasn't something that could be done in traditional general practice, and was there a turning point? And because it sounds really scary to me, the turning point where you go. I'm now ready to do this on my own and take a jump and a leap of faith and go, I have, one, I have to do this and I'm not going to have, I presume we haven't asked you, the backup of still doing a day a week of general practice because I think that's complicated in a local town where they could see you as a GP on Monday and in your new space every other day. What is it that you then went let's do it, let's jump, and I'm going to do it now?
2: Yeah, I love that question. (laughs) So there was a couple of things. The first thing is, you know, when considering what I'm talking about, I think I should be really clear, like, you know, I'm providing focused psychological skills and treatment under mental health plans and eating disorder plans but from a whole person perspective, like as I'm, I don't see people in the same way that say a psychologist or a mental health accredited OT or social worker sees them. I see their treatment as a whole person and I have an understanding of their whole being and the areas that I am have my special interest in are for people that have complicated relationships with food, with movement, with their bodies or with sexuality. So I'm a credentialed eating disorder clinician. I have a fellowship of the Australian Society of Psychological Medicine and I'm completing my master's in psychosexual therapy. So I think the first thing for me was it's really hard to do therapy in the busyness of general practice because there's a lot of noise. so there's lots of phones ringing, there's lots of people talking, there's a lot of and there's a lot of disruption and the rooms aren't set up in the way that necessarily, like if you walk into a, a therapy room, for example, there's soft chairs and couches, whereas in a general practice we're sort of set up for consultation, so it's a different vibe. In What are these things called? Inverted commas.
0: I'm just going to say air quotes.
2: Yeah, inverted commas, like, you know, the <laughs> vibe. It's I did have consultations where the space that I was conducting, focused psychological strategies, had to be used as part of the vaccination clinic for COVID and I had to do some of those consultations upstairs in my regular room and it was completely different I didn't have the capacity to provide a safe container in the same way and I certainly found when I was doing that work within my general practice it was much harder and I you know so you might get interrupted in the with a phone call or the messages might pop up if the sound is on or the room isn't quite set up quite right or there's you know you might be doing a guided Introspective something, and then someone is like man, man, walking down the hallway, and you can like hear them. It's just it didn't provide a level of safety that's required, particularly for working on some of the issues that we need to work through. So that was one thing where I realized it couldn't be done in a regular general practice environment unless the room was fully soundproof and set up just for that. The second thing was I was doing two days a week of general general practice and two days a week of this sort of work. And I realised, I like personally, I know a lot of people do very, very part-time general practice, but I personally found it really difficult to do general practice well in two days. I think um, I struggled to do general practice well in three days. You know, when you sort of do it in three days, you sort of spend one day catching up on your results and letters and then, you know, the next day is a bit okay and then the third day feels all right. I think for me the sweet spot in terms of the general practice being in, easy job was four days a week because you've got time to spread out the paperwork throughout the week and you know realistically I sort of found if I was doing two days in general practice then my patients needed to have a second doctor anyway because I wasn't there every day so it was almost like if I was working two days it was almost I felt like there was a need to job share and I felt like I wasn't providing the level of accessibility that I would like for myself and So there was that. And then the third thing was once I took out the psychological side of things and did that more specifically, I found that I just wasn't as interested in the other areas of medicine. You know, once I sort of had separated it out and it wasn't a part of my usual day, I realized that the stuff that I loved doing was everything that I was doing downstairs, everything I was doing on the other two days a week. And I just, like I'd, I'd walk up the stairs and be like okay and I'd have to like g up myself for those days and I don't think that's fair you know for the purposes of keeping a finger in the game or keeping you know that sense of well you still have to do it otherwise you're not a GP I don't think it's fair on the people that come to see me if I'm not 100% there you know if in half of the week I'm doing something I'm really passionate and really connected to and feel really, really, you know, brings a lot of energy and excitement for myself. And then the other days I'm just positive pushing through because I should. That's when I realised, yeah, I, I, I don't have to do it because I'll, someone else expects me to or thinks I should or because, you know, that was, you know, that sort of idea around how we have to be.
1: So do you still identify as being a GP?
2: Yeah. I can't I can't do the work that I'm going to do without being a GP. So when people say to me, you know, are you still going to be a GP? I'm like, "Oh, uh, yeah." <laughs> and I said, "So it it's more so that I'm restricting the kind of care that I can provide, not the the my training." So you know, and it and it actually also, Beck. I would say that there's there was certain elements where because of the amount of CPD or, you know, the reading that I had to do in one realm, it meant that I was sort of de-skilling a little bit in the other areas and I didn't feel as safe doing as much of the other stuff, and particularly procedural work. And, you know, there's a part of me that, like, is super scared doing procedural work anyway. Like, I've never been a cutter. I've always enjoyed stitching but never enjoyed incising. So... <laughs> So, yeah, I think I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a social worker or a mental health accredited OT. I'm a GP and a GP with niche interest or special interest in psychological medicine. But I don't, I'm never going to treat someone in the same way as any of those professions. So I'm always going to be a GP. Oh,
1: well, I think we've run out of time, but that's probably a good place to mm. come to a sort of a, a nice contemplative end to, well, it's not an end, it's part of the continuing discussion. So we'll obviously have to come back and find out more and also about what research you're going to be doing in this area. Because that's, that's the next <laughs> bit of the conversation, isn't it? Yes. I'll hand back
0: to you, Beck. No, I agree. It's a lovely pause for this conversation. And I think, as always, we'll wrap up with our pearl of the week. So start us off, Ash, what's your pearl for this week?
2: Well, I think I can't finish off this discussion without talking about the role that peer supervision has provided me. So in all of my mental health work from my early registrar days when I did my extended skills placement in Headspace, I was involved in peer, I guess what psychologists would call clinical supervision, but we can't call it as GPs, clinical supervision, because there's sort of all sorts of weird things. So it's peer-based supervision. And I would say this has been integral to my work. And so currently, I would say anyone who's doing any significant load or any GP, I think, would benefit from someone who talks to them about them as humans doing this work and so my resource would be to check out ASPM I only found them last year so it's the Australian Society of Psychological Medicine aspm.org.au they're a fantastic group of GPs who all do have a special interest in providing psychological care and as an organization they actually run case consultation groups for members on you know, working through the personal and human side of us as GPs working with humans with difficulty.
0: I'm going to jump in now because preparing for this podcast, I was doing a bit of a re- reflection about my journey into general practice and how quite different to you, I like doing multiple things and having a bit of a couple of things going on at the same time and having a think about how I divvy up my week and how I got into doing so many different things and realizing it was probably in my GP training when I had the opportunity to do the academic registrar job. And they actually made you do general practice and research and teaching all at the same time and shuffle that into one week, but you were supported in doing that and you had a mentor and a supervisor who helped you with how to structure your week, how to fit it in and still have work-life balance. And I guess I've still got that supervisor, I've still got that mentor now, several years later. But it was really back then that through that training program, I went, you can do a couple of things with general practice at the same time, and you can have a finger in a few different pies and really enjoy it. And I guess just another shout out that I saw this week, the applications are open for academic registrars for next year. So if anyone's interested in thinking about it, I'm always happy for them to either contact me and I'm more than willing to talk to them or contact the University of Interest and RACGP will have, we might link the location for where you can do those applications as well to this podcast. But it's where I definitely learnt that you can do more than one thing at a time and hopefully do it well. You, Charlotte, what was your pearl of the week? Look, I
1: don't actually have a pearl of mm-hmm. the week this week, but I'll, I'll add that, I mean, from my perspective, I think the having a peer-to-peer mentoring is an incredibly important part of that and both of you have talked about that and you both have different sorts of ways that you've approached your career and I think that is the joy of of being the generalist is that you have so many flexible options and you can take it whichever way you want and there's no reason to ever be unhappy because there are so many options and having someone to talk to and debrief and help you make some of those choices. And they can be sometimes feeling like they they need to take another a big jump like Ash, you've done. Yet what you've done is you've jumped into this pig puddle of mud, really, isn't it? You know, you're now there having this wonderful I don't know if I have described it as
2: a pig bottle of uh, mud, but okay.
1: I, I like that that idea of that you know the 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 being being the the happy pig in mud concept. So what you?
2: Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Sorry. It's quite, it's quite just, to me, it sounded like you were saying that I was jumping into a pile of. No, S. no, no! <laughs> I was actually meaning that you were
1: just really, really happy in something that somebody else may not see as being yeah something that's creating absolute joy, and I think that and that's the joy isn't it is finding what you actually really get passion from and you know I'm like Beck I like having a number of things keeping me happy and I know that I would never have been a happy partialist because I would have gotten bored with with that and I would have ended up being a generalist in some way or other in that partialist specialty so it's been a great career for me but I think one of the things the RSEGP is working on at the moment is this sort of idea of clusters of groups of peers to support each other in both their learning and their ability to improve what we're doing. And I think that again is a great model because a lot of the stuff I've seen around really good quality care is about that peer-to-peer mentoring, accountability and sort of sharing to make what they call mind they called mind lines by these Scottish GPs. Rather than guidelines because what you're doing is you're making sense of the guidelines with your peers and the, the other stuff around it to actually meet the real-world needs of the patient in front of us and that's our skill and we do it well most of the time.
0: What a lovely conclusion to this week's podcast. I think we'll sign off from here and see you all next time. Thank you.